You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. You know, as Derek mentioned, today is day one of a new order handed down by the governor. It requires travelers to have a negative COVID-19 test in hand before arriving in the islands. Maui Mayor Mike Victorino is in support of the tighter restrictions, even though the visitor uh, industry uh, and some of those leaders in that industry are critical of the move. I was one of the mayors that was very concerned with the small uptick in visitor and visitors' positivity. Yeah. First of all, the tests, and I've been a proponent from the bidding. You can go check the record. I wanted a sandwich test. I wanted them to come in, everyone with a negative COVID-19 test, and get a secondary test within 72 hours because that's what most of the medical experts said was the best way to prevent spread or bringing in new cases. I was shot down in the beginning when this was all transpiring. Some of the other mayors did not feel that was important enough, that, you know, voluntary secondary testing or some other methodology, or they could come in, wait to stay in quarantine until they got their results, and then from there they could go out and enjoy their vacation. If they were positive, then they'd have to quarantine until they returned home or 14 days. Well, remember, you fly on a plane for five to six hours, depending where you're starting from, right? You know, that recirculated air, even though the airlines have done a fabulous job in new filtration and ultraviolet and all these other methods that they are to prevent spread, if you're in the same airplane for five to six hours and you have it, I will bet you a nickel and a quarter that it'll probably spread to somebody else. And so with that being said, you can have someone who took the test, was clean, was negative, and pick it up on the plane and three days later, we find them positive here in Hawaii or here in Maui County. And we did find some cases. People came in with negative results. They showed us the QR code. Everything was fine. And then three days later, they took a secondary test, many times voluntarily. They just decided, or they felt sick, and they went to the doctor, and bam, they were positive. So these cases were mounting, I think, 40 or 50 of them. All of the islands had it, all of the islands from, from Hawaii Island all the way up to Kauai. And all of us mayors are getting a little concerned that we are already working with community spread, trying to prevent that from occurring. If this could be transmitted to workers or other people you deal with, then it could spread in our community even more rapidly. And we are in, and I guess the second part of all of this, we're in the United States and the world have had numbers of record-breaking days as far as new cases throughout the world and throughout the United States. 42 states have had record numbers, record numbers of death. You know, nothing that you can really pin on and say, oh, this is all good. We don't have to worry. It's almost the exact opposite. And so we're siding on the side of caution. You know, we want to be safe. We want you and your family to be safe so our community stays safe. So it's really something I thought that needed to be done. Should he have consulted with the hotel industry more? I might say yes. I'll agree with that. You know, consult those who are the most impacted, but their workers are the front line. And do we want to infect them? Do we want them to go home and infect their family? Absolutely not. So, again, if they're a little upset at us as leaders, we've had to make decisions based on the information as it becomes available. Information right now shows a high number of cases in the mainland, which are some of the same people that are traveling here to Hawaii and Maui County. So you stand by the governor's decision? I stand by his decision. Could it have been done better? Probably. I mean, like anything else, you do your best. You know, as a leader, I've learned this much. I do the best I can. I consult the best experts, whether they're medical, hospitality industry, business leaders, uh, financial, you name it, across the board. I have different groups that I, I meet with or I have telephone conferences with most of the time to discuss the changes that are occurring around us and how we can better it for our people. Because... There's another pandemic that's going on in Hawaii called economics. You know, this past weekend, I was in Wailea. My son had his charity golf tournament, which we caught some heat for because there are those out there that say my son was treated special and I'm the mayor and he's the son of the mayor. Well, he's more famous than me, so I'm not even worried about that part. But no trespass treatment was given to him. But going on to what I was saying, I was around the hotels, restaurants in the area, and let me tell you, to a person, I'm going to say to a person, they were so thankful that we were reopened and they had their job back. Even though they're not getting as many hours as they used to, they were just happy to get out and get back working 
and to have some kind of normalcy in their household. They're scared. They're wearing their masks. They're trying to keep physical distancing. They understand the importance. And most of the guests, in fact, I never saw anybody not walking around with their masks in the hotels themselves or in the restaurants. Now, outside on a beach, yes. On the golf course, yes. And I, you know, I would not scold them, but I would say, hey, you know, you should put it back on if you're not running or walking. You know, if you're just kind of just cruising along, yeah, wear your mask. You know, if I got to ask, then you should be wearing your mask. You know, that's our mantra here. There are some in the visitor industry, though, that, you know, say that this tweaking of this program just adds more risk to the traveler. And I know the health officials are saying, don't travel for Thanksgiving. We know that mm-hmm. lots of people, you know, are traveling and, and are, are, aren't going to break their plans. On one hand, you know, uh, the governor is criticized for not being decisive, for being too inclusive. And yet, I guess when he steps out and tries to make a decision, you know, then he gets criticized for not getting more input. That's right. You hit the nail on the head. I couldn't have said it better. And I'm in that same shoes for the little county of Maui. So I don't care what we decide, when we decide, or how we decide, we've got our critics. I don't care where you look at. And so I've learned there's two entities that I turn to every day. And if they say I've done a good job, then I know I've done a good job. One is the good Lord, and the second is my lovely wife. (laughs) If they say I'm doing a good job, you know what? I believe I'm doing a good job because my lovely lady is one of my biggest critics. I mean, there is no other person that will criticize me or scold me if I've not done what she believes should have been done. Okay, so so, so who's, the, who's the enforcer in the family? Because I know enforcement is a, is a big issue. I know you had a situation uh, over there on Maui with a large crowd gathering. I think it is Big Beach? Little Beach. Little, Little Beach. beach. Little Beach. Yes. Little Beach in Paia. So there's how- one in Paia, and then there's... Oh, no, I'm sorry. Little Beach is in McKenna. Baby Beach is in Paia. I'm sorry. You know, you got baby beaches, little beaches, big beaches. You got so many beaches here. And I wish we'd use the Hawaiian names. That way I would not get so confused. But anyhow, with that being said, DLNR uh, went down on Sunday night and made a a big uh, movement to get them out of there to make sure that they weren't spreading. I mean, they were running around and no mask on and having fun and dancing and playing their drums and you know, even though they were outdoors, if you look at some of the pictures, there was no physical distancing, and these are not family members. So, you know, this is concerning because if you remember, about a month and a half, two months ago, we had a big, uh, we had an outbreak, and they were that and a yoga class was connected with that outbreak. You know, all you need is a super spreader, bam, and it gets out there really quickly. So, I, I appreciate when law enforcement, whether it's state or county, takes appropriate action. We have. We've had very similar what you guys did in Honolulu, a mass patrol, if you want to use. They were out there and, and citing people for not wearing their masks. Many times when they went up to them and said, you know, you're supposed to have a mask on, the person would whip it out of their pocket, put it on, said, I'm sorry. And we never cited them. We just warned them. But there were those that were belligerent that said, no, we don't have to wear masks. It's, it's unconstitutional and da 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 Hey, during a pandemic, we're trying to protect you, your family, and our community. So wear masks. Please. And so I'm, I'm comfortable in what we're doing. We're trying our best, Catherine, and I, 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 I don't have no regrets in what I've done. You had a situation also on Lanai that made everybody kind of gulp because Lanai was COVID-free. And then all of a sudden to have that cluster in the community uh, was pretty scary. Absolutely. And uh, we, we, in, within a two-and-a-half-week period, we went from zero to 106. But I'm proud to say after 10 days, there has been no new cases on the island of Lanai. So we got in there. We did what we needed to do. It was a cluster. It was Pacific Islanders. Uh, you know, they had gotten together for some event, and it started. And that's why I talk about super spreader. All you have to have is one or two people infected and sharing amongst a group of people who go home and share it amongst their family, and bam. You had that super spread on, on the island of Lanai. But the Lanaians stepped up to the place. They went. They stayed at home. Order was issued. They did that. They did everything right. And now they're um, at the level of safer at home. See, sometimes I forget all these terms, but I apologize. They had the stay-at-home order. Now they're safer at home, which gives them a little more flexibility to get out and all that. But still, you know, protecting their community. The Lanaians have done a fabulous job. And I want to say mahalo to them. All the medical, National Guard, CDC. Department of Health, everybody went and helped 
just like we've done in Honolulu at these different clusters. They've come out and tried to help in every way possible. And many times if you catch it early enough, that's another issue. Then we got a chance to stop it or slow it down. That's why testing is so important. I agree with Kirk. I agree with all the mayors. We want to continue doing testing both for the community, the visitor, everybody, because if we can catch them early, we prevent spread from getting out of hand. And I was reading that uh, Larry Ellison uh, was, you know, taking extra precautions, uh, you know, trying different things uh, on his uh, resorts there just to help try to keep, you know, the guests safe and the community yes, Mr. safe. Ellison, you know, Pulama Lanai and Mr. Ellison has done a terrific job as corporate partners in this pandemic. You know, that man um, authorized four full months of pay and benefits to his employees in April, May, June, into July. And then now that this, we've had this outbreak on Lanai, he brought in extra test kits, rapid uh, test results, all kinds of equipment to help us in that sense. So Lanai, I think we've done like 4,400, something between 42 and 4,400 tests in the last month for a population of just under 3,100 people. And I know earlier this summer there was concern about uh, Hawaiian Air planning to halt service, which also made people gulp, and that got put back in pretty fast. That we worked on that, and we um, got the FAA to say that, you know, you have to give, I believe it was 90-day advance notice, and they did not do that. That was number one. Number two, the pilots and the pilots union and Empire Air and Hawaiian Air, they all sat down and... Uh, and, and was able to resolve the matter. So uh, as far as I know, right now, to the middle of January, we have no interruption in service, not only to Lanai, but Molokai also. And, you know, for both of them, it's a lifeline when they're talking about passengers who need to go to Oahu for various treatments and uh, exceed the weight limit of the airlines. And, you know, there are some bigger people, I've got to be honest, and they were not able, could not handle them. So that really put their, their health in, at risk. So all these factors added in, and I'm very thankful that after the long discussions with them, they saw the light. FAA came in and said, no, you can't. And I said, okay, and it was done. And I want to thank uh, Peter Ingram and the rest for helping us in this, this trying times. I imagine that would be a concern, too, because if you need to uh, medevac someone out uh, because of COVID, you know, if you don't have enough uh, beds there on Lanai or in enough well, ventilators. Lanai and Molokai face the same situation. And so we have set up a system, and there is a medevac system available to move people if necessary. We also have the ferry that runs every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from Manele Harbor over to uh, Lanai Harbor. I'm um, not Lanai, I'm Lahaina Harbor, as you say. And we can transport patients to Marimamar also if necessary. So we have plans in place. So should something go wrong, we are able to move people if necessary. But, you know, like everything else, you can't put them in a plane. I mean, I mean, I mean not a plane. You can't put them in a car or a bus or a train like other states and transport them. Or you can't bring medical facilities as easily as you do in the mainland. So we're very cognizant of that, and we work very hard with our planning to make sure that's all in place before it happens. That was Maui Mayor Mike Victorino. We spoke with him earlier this morning about dealing with our health and economic crisis on this, the first day of the tweaking of the state's pre-test safe travels program. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Today's backyard quiz. We're looking at the life of a man who did much to shape the direction of Hawaii State University as its president. 
from 1974 to 1984. He was the first Asian American to become president of a major university in the United States. He was born in Honolulu in 1924 to immigrant Japanese parents who owned a small Simon stand. Some of his first work experience came from making noodles after school. He was a product of Hawaii's public school system, attending Pohukaina School, Washington Intermediate School, and McKinley High. He joined the Army in 1943 as a member of an engineering company attached to the 442nd Regimental Combat Team and continued to pursue engineering after the war at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. During his tenure as UH president, he oversaw the creation of the Institute for Astronomy, the Korean Study Center, the Marine Sciences Building, the Duke Kahanumoku Pool, and the William S. Richardson School of Law. For today's quiz, can you tell us his name? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Kahala Market by Foodland, featuring an alcove of wine and spirits handpicked by our field wine company sommelier Marvin Chang, kahalamkt.com. On the next Fresh Air, we talk about vaccination with Dr. Peter Hotez, co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital. He's battled the anti-vaxxer movement and is currently working on a vaccine for COVID-19. Much of his career has been devoted to developing vaccines for neglected, poverty-related tropical diseases. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. As we continue exploring the experience of travelers during these COVID times, we hear from HBR's Ashley Mazuo. She just returned from a trip from the Chicago area and got to see firsthand what the pre-travel test process was like. Last week, I spent a couple of days deep in Smoky Mountains National Park hiking, camping, and cooking. I flew into Chicago O'Hare Airport and drove down south with a friend from graduate school. When it was time to return home, I chose to take a saliva test offered through Vault Health. It's one of the trusted testing sites accepted by Hawaii as part of the pre-travel program. The test materials were mailed to me and I took the test over a Zoom call with a healthcare professional watching. Um, I see you have a stack kit. Is it for Hawaii travel? Yeah, yeah. The test has two vials. One was empty to collect my saliva, and the other has a blue liquid in it to add to the sample for the lab. At this point, I can ask you to go ahead and start collecting the sample. If you would, please remain in view of the camera. All right, so I just spit, just in, spit the, in the... I just spit in the... Okay, okay, got it. Thanks. <laughs> and um, if your mouth feels dry, think about a sour food, lemon, lime, dill pickle, or you can even massage your cheeks. You're not supposed to eat or drink 30 minutes before the test, so it took me a while to generate enough spit for the test. I was a little embarrassed, but after I finished, I mailed the test back to the vault lab in New Jersey, and I had my negative results back in about 48 hours, logged on to the Safe Travels Hawaii website, and answered the questions, then uploaded my test results. Starting today, travelers who want to avoid the 14-day quarantine need to have a negative test result before landing in Hawaii. Prior to the change, travelers without their results would quarantine until they could show they were negative. Please have your at O'Hare Airport, the terminals were pretty empty. My flight was about half full. I spoke with my fellow passengers about their Hawaii travel experience as we waited to board. Here's one of them, Robin Prey. It's been crazy because I had to get my test 72 hours before I flew and I still don't have my results. So I went and got rapid results so that I could fly with some sort of ease because I won't know maybe till tomorrow once I get to Hawaii. Welcome to Honolulu. Once the plane landed, I generated a QR code from the Safe Travels website so it would be ready to scan when we deplaned. Right there, 
I walked through the airport's temperature scanner and then into an area with a bunch of tables where workers and the Hawaii National Guard members processed travelers. They scanned my QR code, checked my ID, and I was good to go. It took less than 10 minutes. The state is randomly selecting travelers to take a voluntary test four to six days after arriving. It's to monitor how many arrivals may be positive even after a negative pre-travel test. Lieutenant Governor Josh Green says few are, but that may vary by county. I decided to isolate until I could get a second test after waiting a few days. Then I got an email saying I've been randomly selected to participate in the voluntary post-arrival test. Check out my Twitter account, at Ashley Mizuo, for the results. I'll post it there. And Ashley joins us this morning. Welcome back. So much for having me. Yeah, you know, so you were able to squeeze in your trip ahead of the Thanksgiving crowds. You know, when you spoke with the passengers at the gate, what did they share with you about what their plans were and and how things are going? Right. Most of the people in the gate were younger people, I would say, um, and some were actually transferring from uh, Hawaii into Guam. But almost everyone I spoke to were generally coming for vacation. Um, They said, you know, about the trusted partners trying to figure out what is test is the correct test to get was a little bit confusing, but most were pretty confident that they had done the process right or um, at least got their correct test. And they were also pretty confident that the airplane would be safe. Um, you know, airplanes, uh, commercial airplanes are equipped with these special filters, um, which are used in hospital isolation rooms, and they can capture like about 99.97% um, of airborne particles. I mean, substantially reduce the risk of viral spread, um, and the CDC has um, kind of uh, recommended that as well. And because of the high air exchange rate, um, they say it's relatively unlikely that you'll catch coronavirus from someone several rows away as long as everyone's wearing their mask. Um, on the plane in general, most people were able to have their own rows, and on my flight, everyone was wearing masks. I even saw a flight attendant uh, wake someone up whose mask fell um, off while he was asleep and tell him to put it back on. So why did you decide to isolate for a few days and then take the test when you got back? Right. So there's a study um, that's um, frequently noted by a lot of doctors um, by the American College of Physicians that found um, false negative COVID-19 tests range between the 60 and 100% mark during the first four days prior to a person showing symptoms. Um, And the chance of getting a false negative or the test not um, picking up that you have COVID um, drops considerably between, you know, day five and day seven, which is the average amount of time that it takes for symptoms to show up. Um, So a second test could help um, ensure that, you know, the majority of infected travelers are identified, but it is important to do that um, intermediate quarantine for a couple of days to make the... um, the virus incubate. Well, we're glad um, uh, we're glad that you got back safe. Uh, thanks so much, Ashley. Thank you. You've been hearing from HPR reporter Ashley Mizuo. You can find her story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. And Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check takes a closer look at the pushback from travel industry leaders over the governor's decision to require that negative test in hand before getting on a plane to Hawaii. Business reporter Stuart Yurton joins us now. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Catherine. So, yeah, uh, lots of people who were not happy about this news. Yes, this this seems like a really small tweak in some ways, but it has really shaken up uh, the tourism industry and, again, this uh, House uh, Select Committee on COVID-19. Uh, really, the folks there, including uh, uh, a number of people outside of the tourism industry, really had a lot to say about it. They're very unhappy. And uh, so the, the meeting, uh, I mean, that, it seems like all they did was kind of bash the governor on this decision. Well, there was a, there were other things in the meeting. Um, so it went on, and uh, uh, Congressman Case was there, and he talked about CARES Act funding and some other things. But yes, once this came up, it it really uh, took up a good bit of time. And and I haven't seen. I've been covering this uh, committee for a while, and really haven't seen this uh, breadth of concern expressed. Uh, since people raised questions about the uh, Department of Health's contact tracing effort, which seemed to be 
uh, not going well. Again, there was just such a consensus of people who were uh, really concerned about it. And they weren't, they're pretty measured, but they were all expressing concern. Well, uh, I know one of the early ones who stepped out was uh, Peter Ingram uh, from Hawaiian Air. Right. So, right. So, as you know, you know, Hawaiian Airlines used to be the largest private employer here, but since COVID came and, and the shutdown occurred, it, it's no longer. It had to cut jobs, not just furloughed, but cut thousands of employees. So, uh, it's really borne the brunt of this in a big way. And, you know, Peter Ingram was noting that the 72-hour window that Ashley talked about, it's a pretty small uh, window to begin with in the best cases. Um, but there was a little wiggle room at the end. If you, you know, if you got here and the test was pending, you um, you could go into quarantine and, and wait till the result came. That's no longer the case. Again, seems you have to if if you have don't have your result when you land here, you're stuck in quarantine for 14 days, even if the result comes back as you're unpacking your bags and it comes up negative, you're still stuck in your room for 14 days. Yeah, and you know, yesterday we did talk to Keith Vieira of uh, uh, KB and Associates, a uh, hospitality uh, consulting firm, and he was saying, yeah, this this change really puts a lot of uh, risk on the travelers. So. Uh, yeah, it just kind of compli- complicates things for the visitor industry overall. Yes, definitely. Um, you know, the problem, and, and again, the problem is that uh, it's a tight window. You, you can't do it any uh, any earlier than 72 hours before you leave. So then you've got this narrow window when you're waiting for your test result to get back and if it's not back. The one thing that we've heard is that the airlines generally don't, um, require change fees. So theoretically, if you didn't get your result back, you'd be able to change it and um, and not get charged and, you know, come back, leave a day later. But I haven't followed up on that with in the individual airlines. It's just what someone said at the press conference the other day. Well, I know with the holiday coming up, uh, we've got lots of people heading to the airport today, you know, and uh, we'll just kind of see what happens as uh, these visitors and returning residents, what happens to them when they try and come back and they don't have their their results. Right. And it's a lot of people. We had over the weekend, I think one day, 12,000 people arrivals, including something like 10,000 of them or more were tourists. So we're getting quite a jump during the holidays. All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. Read his story online at civilbeat.org. You know, it was back in July of 1990 that President George Bush signed the Americans with Disabilities Act into law. Thirty years later, we reflect on the progress made in the areas of access and inclusion for the disabled. We reached out to Honolulu attorney Lunsford Phillips. Over the years, he's taken business and government to court for failing to comply. He took aim in order to raise awareness about the law, which calls for providing reasonable accommodation for those living with a disability. ADA is such a uh, important law. I mean, it's everything to people with disabilities that the 1964 Civil Rights Act is for uh, people of color. So it's a big deal. So how well is this law working? Are people complying? Well, it's not achieved its intended goals because it has not been enforced nearly as much as it should have or needs to if it really is going to be a life changer for people with disabilities. The ADA is not enforced because people don't understand that Congress intended that the ADA be self-enforcing. 
by giving people with disabilities the right to bring a lawsuit if necessary. And if they do so and are successful, which most cases are black and white, either it's accessible or it's not accessible. And uh, if a person uh, prevails in court, the offending entity, the business, has to pay their legal fees. So enforcement doesn't cost the person who's been denied their civil rights anything at all. The civil rights violator pays all the costs, including the victim's legal fees. So uh, people don't understand that, and they say it's going to be too expensive, it's going to be too much trouble. Well, the intention of Congress was that people not rely on the government to enforce that civil rights, but that the individuals affected enforce it. And they made that quite practical and possible. Now, I've done many stories with you over the decades. You know, I know you've taken on certain types of businesses as an example to show what needs to be done. And just on the top of my head, you know, I think you sued a bank. I think you sued a department store. It, but the fixes don't have to be expensive fixes. If I recall, there was a water fountain that was too high. And I think, you know, part of the fix there was, you know, have paper cups available so that someone can use the water fountain. In fact, that's true. And that's another fact that is mostly unknown. And people have the wrong uh, impression. The, the ADA only requires a business to do what is reasonable. That's right in the statute. And um, the rules and regulations spell out what reasonableness is, is without undue expense or effort. So right in the law, it says this is not going to cost a business a arm and a leg. That would not be reasonable. And so that's not what the law requires. And because Congress put that in terms of reasonableness, it's a elastic concept. A big business with a lot of resources has more things that are reasonable for it to do than a small mom-and-pop store. So uh, a court will look at what the resources are of the offending business and decide what the person with a disability is asking for to be provided in terms of accessibility, whether or not that request is reasonable. I recall you taking the city to task about the terrible sidewalks, you know, and the access. I think I recall there was a situation at the Aloha Stadium, you know, for concert goers. My concept was the plan was to uh, take on some of the big businesses like banks and uh, department stores and the municipal government in the thought that, one, that would get a lot of publicity, and two, once people, small businesses, saw that big businesses who could afford expensive legal defense was, were unable to avoid being held responsible, that the small businesses would say, wow, you know, if, uh, if Bank of Hawaii can't successfully defend against this ADA claim, how, what chance do I have? I better just should comply. Unfortunately, that did not have the effect that I had hoped. Most people may not know that you ended up in a wheelchair because I think a skiing accident um, yes. changed your life. 40, 40 years now. And so, I don't know, what was the pandemic shutdown, you know, what was that like for you? I know for able-bodied person, this lockdown and all the restrictions that COVID have caused have resulted in unusual restrictions in their activities. But frankly, for people with disabilities, we have uh, major restrictions all the time. So, you know, I'm staying home. Well, I don't have much transportation means, so 
Well, I spend a lot of time at home ordinarily. I can't communicate with some people because of disability, and now people without disabilities are finding that they can't communicate with people as they used to. So it's kind of a imperfect, but a bit of a inkling for uh, people without disabilities what it's like to uh, have a lot of uh, restrictions on their wished activities that people with disabilities have long had and uh, have adjusted to. And I'm not complaining. I'm not asking for sympathy. I just hope that able-bodied people take this season of Thanksgiving and be thankful that the restrictions that they are experiencing will pass and the restrictions that I have won't. What are you most thankful for this Thanksgiving holiday? Uh, All the help that I get from people, principally my wife, who has been my principal caregiver for 45 years now. And uh, it's hard to be disabled, but without having somebody to help you, it's really it's really bad. So I am I am thankful for my wife and all the people who help me. You have been listening to Lunsford Phillips, a longtime Honolulu attorney. He was talking with us about the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Phillips tells us before he retires, he would like to help the deaf community because he feels they're more separated and isolated than others with disabilities and may not realize that their civil rights are being violated. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to reconnect with the art and museum spaces on Pauhana Friday evenings until 9 p.m. More at honolulumuseum.org. Are you service-minded? HPR is looking for a full-time membership coordinator to give our station members and volunteers the care and support they deserve. If you love public radio and are ready to join our lively and highly interactive workplace, learn more on the Employment Opportunities page at hawaiipublicradio.org. Applications due by November 30th. In today's Backyard Quiz, we recall the history of the University of Hawaii and the man who led it for a pivotal decade from 1974 to 1984. He grew up in Hawaii and attended Pohukaina School, Washington Intermediate, and McKinley High School. He served as a member of an engineering company during the Second World War and came home after post-war studies, earning an engineering doctorate at MIT in 1952. He taught engineering at UH in the mid-50s and later became the new state's director of transportation under Governor John Burns. His 10 years as president of the University of Hawaii from 1974 to 84 saw the development of the UH Law School, the Institute for Astronomy, and the Marine Sciences Building, among other programs. Today, we asked you to name Fujio Fudge Mutsuda, the first Asian American to become president of a major university in the United States. He was named a living treasure of Hawaii in 2004, but sadly just passed away this year at the age of 95. Congratulations go to uh, Sandy Oshiro from Honolulu. You got the answer right. Uh, This was a popular quiz. We also had some calls from the Big Island who remember the Matsuda family. Hulihia, in Hawaiian, it means overturn, and it's also the name of a new collection of essays from the University of Hawaii Press. The first volume of The Value of Hawaii was published 10 years ago, and the second followed four years later. 
With 2020 bringing profound change to the world, the book once again brings diverse voices to share their vision for Hawaii's future and discuss the big issues facing the islands, climate change, urban development, tourism, and more. The conversations Jason Ubai spoke with Noilani Goodyear uh, Kaupua. She is a professor and department chair at the UH Manoa's Department of Political Science and is one of four editors on this book. So the first volume of the value of Hawaii was edited and published 10 years ago. It was edited by Kumu John Osorio and um, Professor Craig Howes, both professors at UH Manoa. And they gathered people who had been working in particular fields to kind of give the reader a lay of the land of what's happening in energy or in agriculture or, you know, all of these major sectors and um, aspects of life in Hawaii. How did we get here was really kind of the question. And the book was intended to be something that could catalyze conversations particularly in an election year. It was distributed to every sitting legislator. It was adopted as like the book of the year, you know, at, at a university, like all of the university students read it. So it was really kind of meant to generate conversation about Hawaii. So they then asked, uh, Aiko Yamashiro and, and I were sort of the, the next generation um, that's coming right after them to edit the volume two and volume two similarly took a sort of next generation of people who are leading in different areas of our communities folks who are working in community-based farms or revitalizing fish ponds or working in the local music scene educators all all of these different kinds of um, elements of life again and 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 asked to share how did you get activated to do the work that you do for um, to lead change in Hawaii. How did how did you come to that? And that was really meant to be invitational to reach out to particularly students and young folks to say, what are the roots that you come from? The the title of the second volume is Value of Hawaii Two, Ancestral Roots, Oceanic Visions. And so it really was okay. How do we you know honor and celebrate the roots that we all that uh, nourish us, and then take these visions into the future. And we also were really intentional with volume two about trying to be as inclusive as possible of the various ethnic groups of our of our islands, particularly Pacific Islander voices who are not often heard as much as some of the, you know, more populist groups like Hawaiians and Caucasians and Japanese. And so we, we were really intentional with trying to be inclusive about who was contributing to that, and then also people from different islands, right, that it wasn't meant to be like a Oahu-centric kind of a vision for Hawaii. Value of Hawaii 3, Hulihia, the turning, was inspired by this moment that we are in, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, of all kinds of transformations and change that some of which we are being forced to deal with, some of which, you know, have been the result of many, many years, generations even of, of communities organizing. But we all got together, the four of us who have edited volumes one and two, and we said, okay, who can we ask that is working at sort of the cutting edge of different kinds of change in Hawaii and use this opportunity of hulihia, which is a turning um, and not just kind of a, it's difficult to, it's difficult to um, translate into to, um, to English, but Hulihia comes from Hawaiian chants and traditions. And in particular, in my piece in the collection, um, I cite the work of Dr. Enkumuhula Hualani Kanakaole Kanahele, who writes in Kahonua Ola about about Pele and how in these chants that are huli, called Hulihia chants, these are about massive, explosive, vastly transformative kinds of changes and part of the cycle of, you know, the Earth's own renewal. And so um, 
we wanted moments where everybody's been kind of forced to stop in our tracks in some ways and confront new challenges and say, how do we want to come forward in the wake of this pandemic? We don't want to just return to the old normal. We want to be able to use that opportunity to actually move toward the kinds of changes that our communities have been envisioning for a long time. So the contributors to the value of Hawaii 3 are incredibly numerous. There are over 65 contributors. They're writing about the first section is on overlapping emergencies. So it's addressing issues of climate change, of the need to address climate change from a position of thinking about justice and how you know we nurture equity as we are also preparing for and dealing with what's already happening in terms of those changes. Of course, the COVID-19 crisis, our over-dependence on imported foods, uh, the collapse, in, or at least the, the major stoppage um, of tourism. So there are a number of these kinds of intersecting emergencies that are addressed in that first section. Um, the second section is really kind of about turning back to think about, okay, knowing that our communities are dealing with all these challenges, COVID-19, massive storms, food insecurity, what are the ideas that come out of both the very old kind of ideas, you know, ahupua'a system values, new ideas around, for example, the um, Aina Aloha Economic Futures declarations that have come out, ideas around how do we transition to renewable energy in a just and sustainable way that's inclusive? How do we rethink our diets in, in preparing for being able to produce all of our own foods here? How do we think about the criminal justice system differently, particularly in this moment of the Black Lives Matter um, uprisings over this year? So all of these kinds of things, you know, labor, and at the same time, recognizing that our our creative arts, our songs, our stories are all part of sustaining the real strength of our communities. So that's the second section. And then the third section really kind of builds on, on that and how our communities already beginning to do this, how our communities such as on Molokai, you know, how have people already been addressing the issues of feeding one another in this time? How are people using the opportunities to create home, to create communities for unsheltered and houseless communities? How are we valuing each other's languages, each other's histories? How are people organizing to support one another across different kinds of um, struggles, across different ethnic communities across different class backgrounds so those are some of the things that we try to deal with in section three and then the very final section is really kind of taking that visioning of our futures even further and a couple of the chapters in that final section actually even go to 100 years from now and tell a story of you know 100 years after this pandemic how will our descendants who are still calling Hawaii home, who are still cultivating what we value here, um, how will they look back upon this time and the decisions that we made um, in 2020? Well, it sounds like it covers a lot of ground, but uh, yeah, it works hard to try to connect in a past, present, and future. And We try to cover a lot of ground, um, but we also try to make the chapters very short and readable. So this is not an academic book that is difficult for anyone to pick up and just really kind of get into. The essays are short. They're meant to be um, read in a single sitting. They're um, 1,500 words, which probably doesn't mean a lot to most listeners out there, but they're a few pages each, basically each essay. So they're meant to be provocative pieces that give us ideas, that put ideas out there, and then can catalyze further conversation about the different topics. Now, I, I also noticed that a lot of the essays are 
fairly topical. I mean, it's in this present moment, but they, they were all written before Election Day. Do you think that changes any of the content? I don't think the outcome of this election um, will will impact whether or not this is valuable. The kinds of issues that are um, being discussed in the book are they're complex issues that are going to take a long time for our communities here in Hawaii to address. You know, things like how do we address our over-dependence on a mass tourism industry where most of the ownership is outside of Hawaii. You know, issues like food security where we're not going to change the fact that we import the vast majority of our foods overnight. What are the long-term visions, but then also what are the steps that we can begin to take at various levels, community level, island level, you know, and then high Aina wide about how to address those issues. Uh, why did you decide to put it out online? Um, and I understand that there's a print edition coming out uh, sometime next year? In February, yeah. So we, um, the turnaround on this project was incredibly fast for anybody who knows book publishing. It, it normally takes much, much longer. We were able to get invitations out to contributors during the summer and have the book ready to be distributed digitally in November, right before the election. So it's an incredibly fast turnaround, in part because the chapters are short, um, digestible pieces, but we chose to deliver in this open access digital format, one, because these are pressing issues that we wanted people to be able to be talking about now, especially you know, while people are still in this moment of having to figure out their lives in the midst of a pandemic, we wanted to make it open access, which means that it's free. It's freely downloadable because there is an economic crisis going on. We wanted to make sure that the work could get out to people without them having to pay anything, that it could be utilized by students. Many, you know, so many students are online right now. So we wanted the um, book to be a resource for teachers to utilize as content and be able to access for free without having to jump through a lot of hoops to get access to the content. So it's freely downloadable on Scholarspace for anyone. That was Noelani Goodyear Kaupua, an editor on The Value of Hawaii 3. The book is available online now. You can find a link to it on our website. And that wraps it up for today. Tomorrow, we get a peek at COVID numbers from the city's wastewater tests. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.